Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hi everyone, thanks again for being with us on the Australia in the World podcast. I am Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hey, Darren. We are recording on the weekend today, Saturday the 10th of October. We had a great guest lined up this week who unfortunately had to pull out, but we are hopeful that they'll be back sometime in the future. As such, we decided we would try a mailbag slash ask us anything episode. I put out a call on Twitter and also solicited some questions from our interns and some colleagues and friends. And so if today works, I'm sure we'll do it again. So please feel free to email us anytime with questions. And before we get started, if you'll permit us one small boast, once this episode comes out, we will cross the threshold of 100,000. Yes, 100,000 lifetime downloads for the podcast. And Alan and I are in equal amounts thrilled surprised and grateful to each of you for giving up your time to hear what we and our guests have to say. So thank you very much. And with that, let's get started. So our first question today comes in two parts. And the first part sort of conveniently allows us to sneak in a bit of a discussion of current events. The question goes, at what point would the USA be considered a failed state? What is the criteria for using the term in international relations? And how many boxes does the USA currently tick? I'll get started with this as the academic. I actually wrote my law honours thesis a very long time ago now on the United Nations governance of failed states, though I can't remember many details now. Let me say this though, true failed states are territories where there is no effective authority to provide the basic functions of governance. And we're mostly talking about security here. And so the international community takes an interest in failed states because this internal turmoil and lawlessness poses some kind of threat to international peace and security. Hence, there is a question of whether the international community and whether international intervention might be necessary to provide some of those governance functions and remove the threat. And that's obviously a big deal if the UN or some other grouping is coming in and effectively becoming the government. Now, Despite provocative media headlines in the US, the United States is nothing close to a failed state in these terms. Yes, of course, there have been numerous policy failures and really bad ones, as we've seen, with terrible consequences. And you, you could even say some crimes against international law if we're to believe some more reporting about child separations at the border that came out in this past week. And it's also true that weakness inside the United States may have consequences for international peace and security, as we have discussed. But no, not a failed state. At this point, Alan, I'll turn it over to you and maybe also invite you to comment on an absolutely bonkers few weeks in US politics, headlined by President Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis, but also an ever-widening gap between him and Joe Biden in the polls. What are the relevant failures here, if we want to think about it that way? And do they matter for Australia, Alan? Well, like you, Darren, I don't 
think the US is a failed state. The elections will go on early next month and the institutions of government are a bit battered, but they remain firmly intact. But it's certainly dysfunctional at the central levels in a way Australians have never seen before. You just have to look at the first presidential debate to see that. Norms are being eroded with every passing day and divisions are getting deeper. So the chasms out of which the US polity needs to climb in order to function as it did through most of the 20th century is becoming deeper. I think I've become more worried about the US, but my views are certainly no darker than that of many of the American thinkers that I admire. And these you know, stretch right across the spectrum from conservatives through to progressives. When you think about the dysfunction, it obviously lies in a number of different directions. There are cultural divisions, identity politics, economic differences, social, racial divides. But at least in part, it seems to reflect, to me anyway, the rigidity of a constitution that's now two and a half centuries old. I was thinking about this the other day. We often think about the Brits as hidebound and traditional, but it's telling how much more flexible their unwritten constitution has turned out to be than America's foundational document. So in areas ranging from the vote to the power of the House of Lords to the dispersal of power from Westminster to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, changes there have been much more frequent than you think about. But the sacralization of the American constitution, as well as its written nature, makes it much harder to adjust provisions that are clearly no longer fit for purpose, like the structure of the Electoral College or the lifetime appointments of Supreme Court judges, who, of course, are now living a great deal longer than they might have been expected mm. to live in the late 18th century. Looking at the polls at the moment and the hard work that's been done to address the mistakes that the pollsters made with Hillary Clinton, you would have to say that a Biden victory is more likely than not, although I know that many Americans are reluctant to say this out loud for fear that something will happen. For the sake of Australia and the United States, I badly want this to be true. If it is Biden, the repairs can start, although... You know, we've talked before on the podcast, Aaron, I mean, the focus of a Biden administration will be heavily internal because the need for the country to face these divisions. If it turns out to be Donald Trump, then to use an IR term, I think we are stuffed. That technical IR term. Yes, thanks, Alan. That's a really interesting perspective. I'm less convinced and I'm, I'm really following or echoing the work of the New York Times columnist, Ross Douthat here in terms of we're less concerned or maybe more wary of arguments that the US constitution itself lies at the root of the problem. Yes, of course, it's bad for the legitimacy of elections that a president can win the electoral college and lose the popular vote. But this has only happened one other time in the year 2000, since the late 19th century. It's, as you said, Alan, it's not great. The GOP can command a Senate majority that falls well short of representing 50% of the population. And the Supreme Court situation where you can have a, a long-term majority of conservative judges without the same reflected in elections is also not great. But yeah, the Senate and Supreme Court structural advantages for the GOP are fairly recent phenomena. Democrats dominated both institutions for much of the latter half of the 20th century. And so the optimist's case is that 
counter-majoritarian outcomes like the 2016 election spur political realignments such that political parties stop going for 50% plus one of the vote or the equivalent in the Electoral College, but look to build coalitions of supermajorities. And if you look at what Biden's been doing just in these past few days, he's begun beginning to advertise in Texas and sending Kamala Harris there. Democrats are highly competitive in Senate races in, in places as conservative as Kansas and Alaska. For me, that's reason to be positive. And if there is an electoral wipeout, then the GOP, the Republican Party, will need to adjust if it wants to stay current and relevant. But the negative or the pessimist case is that polarisation remains a permanent feature of politics and it becomes just about turning out one's base. And if that's true, then I think you're right that the current setup, the rigidity of the US political institutions is too much, the system is broken, and that you know, will be a major problem. The second part of the question is another one that was submitted, which is a follow-up here. You know, what would it take for Australia to move further away from the US? And the label the listener used was genuine strategic autonomy. And again, I'll go first, Alan, quickly, simply to say that I've heard it said a number of times that the, the integration of our defence forces and our intelligence services is so deep that any kind of meaningful separation in the foreseeable future is inconceivable. But to foreshadow a Trump victory like you did, Alan, if he wins and further politicises these agencies, we might be more reluctant not only to join the US in its endeavours, but also even share our information with them. But if we ever you know, did reach a stage of strategic autonomy, it would be a very slow process, I imagine, that preceded it. Uh, is that right? Yeah, that's certainly right. One of the really important differences between the foreign policies of Australia and a number of other US allies is that both sides of politics here claim the origin story of the alliance. Mm. Labor it stems from the turn to America during the Second World War for the coalition. It originates with Menzies and Anzus. And I just can't see that bipartisan approach to the alliance lasting through a second Trump term at least in its current form. So that's mm. on the negative side. But strategic autonomy for a country our size and in our complex environment is a very big ask, even if we were to move to a posture of sort of armed neutrality. Mm. The most solid recent effort to think about this was made by Hugh White and his yes, uh, yes. How to Defend Australia last year. And he estimated that strategic autonomy would cost us 50% more than we're currently planning to spend. That is 3% of our GDP instead of 2%, but with more needed in the earlier years. And he then, as you know, we talked about on the podcast, toys with the idea that full strategic autonomy might require us to acquire nuclear weapons, which would take the cost of the defence budget another full percentage point of GDP. So, you know, hugely expensive. Uh, and since Hugh wrote that, the novel coronavirus has thrown economic plans into chaos. So my strong expectation is that our capacity to move to strategic autonomy is limited. Mm. Okay. Our next question is one primarily for you, Alan, and it goes like this. The title of your book is Fear of Abandonment. 
when the history of the next 70 years of Australian foreign policy is written, will fear be the primary motivator of Australian foreign policy? And if so, of what? That's a good question. I'm working on a, an updated edition of the book now, and the past four years have certainly given us a lot to, to think about. Is there going to be a new chapter, Alan, the last four years? Or? Yeah, well, the book currently ends with a sort of a note of, on the 2016 election in which I say that, you know, foreign policy didn't feature very much in the 2016 election, but, you know, off stage, you could begin to hear the first noises of creaking in the international system and that noise has become <laughs> in the four years so it's going to be fun to try and work out what the hell I think has happened during that mm. period but look I want to make something clear about the title first of all my emphasis was on the word abandonment rather than fear I don't think of Australia as a frightened country which was the name of another book on Australian foreign policy by the former secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs Alan Renouf our concern has rather been to ensure that we're not forgotten about in our remote corner of the globe. And that concern, in turn, has been the generator of some of the sort of central aspects of Australian foreign policy, our commitment to an alliance with a great power, our desire to shape the region around us in ways that suit our interests, and our support for the rules-based order. But that said, I, I have to say that as we look ahead, Australia is unlikely to find itself in a more relaxed and comfortable position than mm. we are now. Compared with our neighbours, we will be poorer and weaker in relative terms than we were during the first 70 years of our foreign policy. Our main ally, again in relative terms, will certainly be weaker. China will be more regionally dominant and that will cause inevitable anxiety and uh, that as we will see in our defence and foreign policy white papers will continue to put pressure on Australia to build partnerships with others so that we are not abandoned. So I'm pretty sure that fear of abandonment will continue to work as a title when the you know 25th edition <laughs> comes out. <laughs> Excellent well there's a great Coral Bell quote from a 1968 Adelphi paper that she wrote, and I read it in a chapter written by our friend Brendan Taylor of the ANU that was on Bell's contribution to Australian foreign policy. And she writes, Australians are the only group of Westerners who must remain fully and inescapably vulnerable to the diplomatic stresses arising in Asia on whose periphery they live or die. So I'll just say that and link to that chapter in the show notes for those who are interested. Yeah, All right, next question. The next question actually references the Abraham Accords, which is the label that's been given to agreements signed between Israel and two Arab Gulf states, the UAE and Bahrain, in mid-September. The question was, is there any potential for something like these accords to make gains in the Indo-Pacific? I'll go first again with this one to point out that we don't really have an equivalent geopolitical landscape across the two regions. You know, what's notable about the Middle East is you don't have a major power present, but several medium-sized powers, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Iran, each of whom don't like each other very much, and each of whom who was at least somewhat amenable to influence by the major powers, the US, Russia, and China. 
So these accords normalise diplomatic relations between Israel and the two Gulf states, and that's likely to do two things, I think. One, make things even more difficult for the Palestinians, but two, maybe increase cooperation between Israel and Saudi Arabia, who would have had to have given their consent before the UAE and Bahrain had acted, and that cooperation would be against Iran. So the agreements don't have much substantive cooperation built into them, And you can argue, I suppose, that really they're just putting on paper what was already happening as interests are aligning around an anti-Iran coalition. In Asia, though, you don't have similar dynamics. You've got two major powers on opposite sides of a competitive divide and other countries that are either more or less in the US camp, but many, many others who are trying to avoid taking sides as much as possible, but with deep economic interdependence connecting everyone, again, which is less so in the Middle East. You don't have also formal, crystallised, decades-long religious tensions, or centuries-long, you could say, benefit from this kind of symbolic action in the Abraham Accords. So, Alan, I'll invite you to comment on the Abraham Accords, but perhaps can I take this opportunity to ask, you and I don't talk very much about the Middle East on the podcast, but it's fair to say, I think, that for the past 20 years at least, or maybe even the past 30 years, going back to the first Gulf War, Australia has paid its alliance dues to the United States in the Middle East region, broadly defined. Do we need to keep paying into this fund or is the new investment vehicle, so to speak, our our stepped up efforts in the Indo-Pacific region going to be enough? Well, look, first on the Abraham Accords, I, I thoroughly agree with your analysis there. I think that the sort of dynamics are so different in the two regions that there's not not much that you could use to build on in our part of the world. On the other question, I don't think we're going to be asked to pay more alliance dues into the Middle East bucket. I've said before that the US invasion of Iraq was one of the great strategic blunders of our time. And from the democratic left to the Trumpist right, I think that's now a pretty general consensus in the US. We've had a clear statement from the Australian government just recently about where its own national priorities lie. In the 2020 Defence Strategic Update from a couple of what months ago now, mm. the, the document said, the government has decided that defence planning will focus on Australia's immediate region, ranging from the northeast Indian Ocean through maritime and mainland Southeast Asia to Papua New Guinea and the Southwest Pacific. So that's really clear. I think it's already fundamentally shaping the Defence Department and the the ADF's view of the world. And this is where we're going to be focusing our national efforts for the foreseeable future with whatever consequences that has for our alliance partnership. And I think this is the region in which our alliance partnership will operate most obviously for the foreseeable future. From the same listener, we have a question which also allows us to sneak in a bit more news from the past week because it's about the Quad. The listener wondered whether the Quad as an arc of democracy had potential. Now, I I went back and looked up that term and it's never been used by any official from any of the four states that I can see. And I went back and looked at the past four years of DFAT media releases regarding the senior officials' meetings of Quad countries. So this is back to 2017. And the word democracy does not feature at all. 
There was also the first ever Quad foreign ministers meeting last year in New York, and, and democracy was not explicitly talked about or mentioned in any of the communications around that that I could tell. And of course, just in the past week, we've had the second Quad foreign ministers meeting in Tokyo. I had a read of Foreign Minister Payne's statement about the meeting, and not that much jumped out at me. Again, the word democracy doesn't appear, although she did highlight the fact that she was attending a meeting of democracies before she left. But other than that, the, the statement and the readouts from the meetings don't really jump out at me. You know, there was a reference to cooperation over supply chains, which now seems to be a staple in the COVID-19 world, and a specific mention of the sub-Mekong region as an important one, which I suppose lines up with Prime Minister Morrison's reference to Vietnam in an interview a few weeks ago that you discussed on a previous episode, Alan. In his remarks, you know, Secretary of State Pompeo was explicitly critical of China per normal but his three counterparts were more measured, again, sort of par for the course. So, Alan, how important is it that the Quad countries are democracies and how much should that fact guide joint policy? And, and do you have any other comments on this recent ministerial? The sort of whole idea of alliances of democracy or groupings of democracies is getting a bit of publicity at the moment. I think Boris Johnson has also talked about this sort of thing. Mm. The issue I have with this is that all countries are on different parts of a spectrum. Where do you draw the line on democracies? The Economist Intelligence Unit's annual democracy index, in fact, only counts Australia as a full democracy among those four quad partners. The others, including the US and Japan, for various reasons, including voter suppression in the US, rank as broad yes. democracies. Now, of course, all of us do much better than China, but the, you know, the point mm. is, where do you go after that? Through in Thailand, you know, Vietnam, as we've, yeah. we've talked about before. So there's no doubt that the democratic modes of government among the four countries generate greater levels of trust between us, however, and that's a good thing. But those same modes of government deliver us changes of leadership as well. So, you know, this has been a particular moment in time with Trump and Modi and until recently Abe, uh, three of the Quad countries have been led by particularly forceful personalities. And we'll have to see whether changes in Japan and possibly the United States alter the dynamics of the group. I think it was important that the meeting was held. I've been a quad sceptic myself, and I may have to change my mind on that, but I'll let you know as my <laughs> thinking proceeds. Okay. I agree, Alan. My take is that it's risky to emphasise the four countries' democratic credentials as being the basis for what they're offering to the region, you know, especially as a counterweight to China for the reasons that you outlined. I think a, a rules-based system free of coercion open to all is, is a better formulation. Yeah, yeah. But that's not to say that democracy isn't important. And I've said this before, and I'm actually working on a piece at the moment on a related topic, but I do see it as being in Australia's interest to promote democracy in the region, wherever possible, you know, as domestic mechanisms of political accountability are more likely to create, I think, a strategic balance in the region and an order that we prefer. Yes, of course, elections produce iconoclastic characters like President Duterte in the Philippines and, of course, Donald Trump. But within democratic systems, 
the public retains the capacity to punish bad policymaking. So systems that don't have true electoral accountability, such as Cambodia and even Vietnam, which is currently, you know, as we've discussed, very much a partner to Australia, these systems over the long term, I think, are much less likely to have stable interests that are in line with ours. And I think much more likely to find common cause with China, who obviously wants a different order than we do. And our next question is about China. We've talked a lot about the Australia-China relationship and Australia's China policy. So can each of you or each of us summarise our assessment of the bilateral relationship since 2017 by grading the Australian government's performance and give a reason for our grade? So Alan, I'll go first, as I expect we're going to disagree a bit here. I would give the government a, a 75, which in ANU terms is a solid distinction. And I suppose for, for non-Australian listeners, that would put the result, yeah, assess Australia's performance as being maybe about the top 20% of possible responses. You might think of that as a, as a, a B plus or maybe even an A minus in the American system. And when I give that grade, when I'm grading an actual student's essay and I give them a 75, it's usually because the student has understood the question. They're given an answer that gets the fundamentals correct, even though it may be a bit rough around the edges. So it's not perfect. And there might be some errors, or maybe one clear error in there. But my message to the student is, you've done your work, you get it, you're going in the right direction, so keep going. But here is how you can improve. So when it comes to Australia's China policy, I find it hard to disagree with any of the major policy decisions that the government has made. Yes, of course, I wish that Prime Minister Turnbull hadn't said the Australian people would stand up in the context of foreign interference because it caused unnecessary offence. And as we've discussed, I agree that the execution of the COVID-19 inquiry call, especially the apparent lack of consultation with like-minded partners prior and the use of the weapons inspector simile, these were clumsy and made things more difficult. But balancing this, however, I think the government has been fairly cool and collected in the face of Beijing's pressure since then and has not sought to exacerbate tensions further. And the final thing I think is perhaps yeah, when I, my emphasis on domestic politics, as we all know, I think probably lowers my expectations for what is possible because I believe everything that the government does is first and foremost about how the story will play on the front pages of the tabloids or on the 6pm news. So I'm not surprised by some of the language used by politicians and I would include the Wolverines here, they may not be helping the debate, as we agree, Alan, but they're probably helping their careers. And so once you take that constraint as given, in other words, I suppose, I am grading my government on a pretty significant and generous curve. I think overall the Australian government has done pretty well. So, Alan, what's your grade and what would your feedback be? Uh, you're right, Darren. We do disagree, I think. I'd be a harder marker than you because we're dealing not with an ANU student, but with a national government which needs to get things right every time and where the stakes are high. Like you, I don't disagree with particular policies that the government has adopted, 5G, foreign interference legislation, though I question the way some of the legislation has been drafted, mm. the need for a pandemic inquiry. But the challenge I issue is to ask whether it would have been possible to achieve all those objectives, as Singapore arguably has done, without the collateral damage we've suffered 
to the bilateral uh, relationship and to the discourse about China inside Australia. Now, my view is that we could have done it like that, although I suspect that for some of the people in the debate, particularly those outside government, the collateral damage has not been an unwelcome byproduct of policy, but has mm. been an objective in itself, forcing, mm. in their view, to see that, you know, little or no common ground can be found with China. The conventional expressions about the desire to have a relationship based on mutual interests are uttered, but we then get embroidery and comments by unnamed government sources which change the focus. Too much of the interpretation of Australian policy, in my view, has been the result of leaks to the media and off-the-record comments. It's clear that this suits some people, but the result is sloppy and undisciplined messaging that is wide open to all forms of interpretation. So you can read anything you like into what we're given. There's, don't misunderstand me, there is plenty of room for ambiguity in the articulation of foreign policy, but too often here we've simply seen not ambiguity but internal contradictions. So cool and collected is not how I would describe a debate which has often been left to run out of control. We both know the speed with which people who argue for a more careful position are swarmed upon as apologists for the Chinese government. So I say again, as you have to, before you are labelled a Beijing bestie in the mm. pages of the tabloid press, that fault is not only on one side. Diplomats need to talk and it's ridiculous for China to re refuse to engage with Australian ministers, but I'm an Australian and it's our policy I care about. So in my view, grading, more work to be done. Mm. I've got, I guess, two responses and a question to that. The first is there is a really interesting question here about how much responsibility the government has or could exercise over the debate. You know, when I used the term cool and collected, I was thinking about the statements of the trade minister and the foreign minister and the prime minister, you know, not taking the bait really in, in the face of Beijing's elevated rhetoric and the drama that comes out of the tabloid media in China, whereas you were talking about everything else. And which I agree has not created a, a very positive atmosphere for debate. It has marginalised groups. It has made people fear racism more. It has made those who want to give a, you know diverse contributions that don't toe a hard line feel intimidated from time to time. And that's all negative. And I guess where we disagree is how much we expect from the government to be able to create through its leadership, create a, a more positive environment. And I guess you have the experience to know when governments can do that, whereas I look at the cacophony of social media and today's environment and wonder whether any government could do much if it's not a bottom-up process where the community itself is leading the debate, which I think has happened to some extent. The second comment is I am grading Australia on a curve and with the rest of the world, and to me it seems that what our government wants to do is actually clearer than most other governments in the world, other than the US, which is an exception. You know, most governments seem to say as little as possible what they want to do, other than to tell the US and China, please don't make us choose, especially in, in our region. So if anything, you could criticise the government for being too forward-leaning. But anyway, they're my two comments. My question, my follow-up question for you, Alan, is if the Prime Minister was here and he'd heard your critique then, I'm guessing he would say that his government and he personally has been crystal clear about what they want to achieve regarding China. 
I know you criticize some of these terms, but he would use comprehensive strategic partner. He would use the word sovereignty. He would emphasize national interest. These are very consistent in his comments whenever he's asked about China. He would say he's given several speeches and that there is really been consistency in what he said. And for the most part about what Foreign Minister Maurice Payne has said, maybe accepting the COVID-19 inquiry stuff. He would say that members of his government are free to say what they like, that editorial opinion writers are free to write what they like, that he would never condone leaks himself, but that he is the Prime Minister and we should pay attention to <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is what he would say, Alan. This is what he would say. Gosh, I'm sorry. And that he, he would say that he is the Prime Minister and that what he says matters. So... When he comes to you, Alan, because he wants to improve things, he says, Alan, I would like some feedback on how I can get a better grade from you next time. Is it about me cleaning up what you have called sloppy and undisciplined messaging, perhaps such that everything has to be channeled through FMO and PMO, the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister's offices, or do I need to articulate more specifics myself? What do you say to him? Well, I, I think he does need to articulate more specifics himself and in greater detail than simple words like sovereignty and national interests can do. You need to get down from that very top level to the level below. I think it's a sort of a bit of a cop-out to say that the Prime Minister and the government you know, can't do anything about the other noises off going on mm. within Parliament and so on. I think the noises off sometimes... Uh, helpful to the government. The government regards yes. them as full, and that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to read a precise view of what the government's objectives are. So I, I think I don't think there's been a clear statement of the government's position since Morrison's AsiaLink speech in June 2019 which means there's a gap in perceptions which is being filled in all sorts of different ways. Well, I'll stop playacting ScoMo here and say if he wants to come on the podcast, we obviously let him talk for as long as he wants to. All right. Our next question comes from the good friend of the podcast, uh, Caitlin Byrne, a professor up at Griffith University, and she asks, given the increasingly complex and integrated nature of international policy challenges we face in the decades ahead, is there a need to radically rethink the way we design and deliver international policy? What does the DFAT of 2050 look like and how will we get there? Alan, do you want to take this one first? Yeah, it's a really good question. In those innocent days before COVID, I wanted the AAA to hold an international conference on the future of foreign policy because I reckon there's a clear need to rethink some of the principles behind it. We talked in one of our recent episodes about the need to reimagine multilateral diplomacy at a conceptual level. By 2050, it's really hard to see that multilateral order not being much more diverse and very different from the way it looks now. The same goes for the way we organise our diplomatic missions. The COVID experience is already testing the ways in which we manage our international representation. So just as office work in Australian cities will be different at the end of this, uh, so I expect we'll overseas posts. I mean, you're mm. closer to that than I am. It's mm. going to take time to work out what works and what doesn't. But my guess is that we're going to see much more flexibility in the deployment of staff for different purposes, 
and, and different periods of time. Mm. The DFAT of 2050 will also be required to communicate in different ways with a broader range of interlocutors, which means better use of some of our soft power attributes. I know that's already happening, but the trend, I think, will grow. But above all, more investment is needed. We should post this on the show notes, Darren, but Alex Oliver from the Lowy Institute pointed out recently that Australia has a smaller diplomatic footprint than Chile, Portugal, Hungary and Greece. Real expenditure on DFAT in 2024 will be less than it was in 2014. We were talking earlier about the defence budget at 2% of GDP and possibly needing to go higher. Diplomacy, Alex pointed out, currently represents 0.08% of the budget. That is less than one-tenth of 1%. So we won't be going anywhere at all without proper resourcing. Mm, I've said before, I, I don't think we need a radical rethink of the policy settings themselves, mostly because I think that Australian foreign policy has done a pretty good job with the resources it has. But that's not to really talk about the design and delivery of, of policy. But you know, there aren't that many critiques, I think, of Australian foreign policy, at least that hold water with me, that don't conclude where you left, Alan, which is that we need to spend more money. We need more investment in those resources. And of course, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but that is not a critique of the foreign policy settings themselves. It's an argument that money spent on this priority gets more value for the national interest than elsewhere. And that's ultimately a political question. And look, no matter what the institutional and bureaucratic and and policymaking structures that exist in 2050, and no matter the complexity of the challenges that we're going to face, you know, for me, it's politics, it's domestic politics that will still be the most important driver of our interests. And there may well be better ways of structuring that policy process. But I imagine if there are, many will also apply to the public service more broadly, not just the foreign policy. But As I said, I've never worked in the APS other than the federal court, so I'm even more of an armchair pundit on this topic than than usual. All right, we're wrapping up here. You've got a couple of of meta questions to finish. The first quotes uh, Richard Feynman, that famous uh, physicist and, and general Renaissance intellectual, who said, if you cannot explain something in simple terms, you don't understand it. That's the quote. Now, the question is, are there any concepts or priors that you each have changed or find your need to understand better because of the discipline of having to make a public conversation about it. How much of the value of the podcast is simply forcing each of you to organise your thoughts and perhaps apply them to other aspects of your professional lives? Alan? Well, the answer is lots. The podcast has certainly been important in forcing me to organise my thoughts and to ensure for my own self-preservation that there's some consistency in them. Uh, It's awful to know that what you've you've said in the past can be brought back (laughs) and used against you. The experience has had enormous value for me, particularly working with someone like you, Darren, who's not another practitioner, but who looks at the subject from a theoretical and systematic point of view. So I'm unable to fall back on the shorthand communications that professionals in any discipline often use with each other and which sometimes prevents them from seeing issues freshly. So I've, I've learned a lot about grappling episode after episode with the relationship between policy and practice, like your question in the last 
<laughs> and last time we met about my theory of minilateralism, which I still haven't worked out. Uh, and of course, despite your reference earlier to it being a, I, I was I was really touched by this. A long, long time since you wrote your honours thesis. Give me a break. Uh, you you have a different generational experience from mine. And I'm very often caught short by that. And it's important reminder to me that we all bring different experiences and insights to the problems of our time. And that events like the fall of the Berlin Wall may not be quite as fresh in everyone's memory as they are in mine. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess when you've got small kids, like I do, something that happened 15 plus years ago, which was my law anesthesis, does feel like a different era back when I was a different person. But anyway, for me, I've experienced clear parallels between preparing for the podcast and teaching. You know, from the moment I started teaching university students, and this was actually back when I was still an undergraduate myself at Monash University, I realized you never really know if you understand a concept until you have to explain it to somebody else. And when you don't understand it, you realize as the words are coming out of your mouth that you're getting it wrong. And that is quite confronting. And something I think similar applies when I'm thinking about my views on foreign policy issues. I can start with visceral reactions, but then when I sit down to prepare, I realize they aren't coherent or they are vulnerable to an obvious critique. And sometimes you point that out, Alan, as well. So if I prepare well, I think I'm hopefully I've been able to make things coherent and perhaps change my mind on an issue or would at least try to build or hedge an acknowledgement of the critique in my responses. So that that's hugely valuable. I do have a, a clear model in my head of how the world works, and that's kind of how my analytical process operates. But that doesn't translate into specific and concrete beliefs about a specific event or circumstances. So when I sit down to prepare, I'll apply my model. Hopefully in the process, I'll be able to form those coherent assessments of a given situation and hopefully also update the model when it's shown to be less than fully useful in understanding events. And I've said this before, but you know the, the instance of that most clearly is in 2016, where I, I always had believed that domestic politics mattered, but I did not understand the, the strength of the populist forces well enough and the d disconnect between elites and the public. Final question, Alan, has your co-host changed your mind? In particular, Alan, do you think more about politics? And Darren, do you believe more in human agency? I'll go first. My views on agency have shifted, definitely a few notches towards where I imagine you to be, Alan. And I still think your story a couple of episodes ago about the meeting between John Howard and Jiang Zemin in 1996 is a good example of where you might have the background and conditions for cooperation, which is what I spend my time thinking about, but you need individuals to seal the deal. They're the things that explain, I think, a lot of the randomness in events. However, you know, I think the larger impact on me from working with you is, is simply the hearing your practitioner's perspective and the emphasis on, on cool and dispassionate analysis. You know, gazing down from the troubled world from my ivory tower, I definitely don't <laughs> understand the reality of diplomacy. I think this has been most true on, on Hong Kong, where I think my emotions, you know, a deep sadness and a sense of hopelessness about the city's trajectory have pushed me to engage in, in wishful thinking, you know, that there was more the Australian government could or should do. I can't remember the exact episode now, but there was one point where I was, I remember launching into a, a bit of a soapbox critique of the foreign minister, Maurice Payne, and a statement she had made regarding 
protests. This was before the national security law, I think. And only for you to point out on the podcast that what I had been complaining about, she'd pretty much done in her statement. And I realized afterwards that being emotional about it had, had clouded my thinking, had clouded my reading of her plain words. I think there is a tension in my own view of Australia and the world. On one hand, you know, I haven't fully come around to your view on agency, Alan, and, and I do see Australia as being severely constrained as, as a middle power. But on the other hand, I see an outcome that brings out the strongest emotions in me and I so desperately want us to do more. And I expect this dualism will be with me for the foreseeable future. What about you, Alan? Well, I've learned a lot from you, Darren, but on agency, I am holding fast. Look, Fair. Fair. In part, this reflects my reading of Australian foreign policy history. It's, it's really hard to look at a minister like uh, Percy Spender or Gareth Evans and conclude that they were the prisoners of their times and that any other person in the job at the time would have delivered the same outcomes. And as for the primacy of domestic politics, that may reflect to some degree the times we live in, uh, you know, 2016, as you, you said, because, you know, working as foreign policy advisor to Paul Keating, I was deeply resented by my more politically focused colleagues in the office who sort of glare at me as they walk down the corridors because the Prime Minister was constantly turning down their ideas for visits to marginal electorates and appearances on talkback radio in favour of discussions with foreigners about APEC or Indonesia. So I could sort of get the PM to do anything in my little area of the office and they had enormous struggles in theirs. And there certainly wasn't a domestic vote in the security agreement we negotiated with Indonesia. On the, on the contrary, it probably put people off. But Keating nevertheless devoted hours and hours of precious prime ministerial time to the foreign policy questions he thought were important. Of course, he did lose the subsequent elections. Uh, my political colleagues may have had a point. Similarly, it's, it's hard to read the George W. Bush administration's commitment to the Iraq war as an initiative shaped by domestic policy. They may have been wrong, I think they were, but I don't think the neocons were acting out of anything other than a conviction of what was best for America and the world, rather than being driven by domestic political considerations. Mm. I think that's a, an interesting question to leave the podcast on because you said it's hard to imagine Percy Spender and Gareth Emmons being prisoners of their times, but then you went on to say, but, well, domestic politics has become even more powerful now. And I think the question is, is it possible to be one of those characters from, you know, the, the leaders from our history in today's political environment? Or has the political landscape changed so much that we are left with what we've got now for the foreseeable future? And I think that we don't have neither of us can answer that now, but that is the the question, not just for for us in Australia, but for the United States and I think everywhere around the yeah, world. Uh, another another conversation there. Mm. All right, our final segment, reading, listening, and watching, actually is going to be in response to a question for us to answer, which is, what classic texts would you both recommend to a person looking for a career in international affairs? And now allow me uh, personally to add a rider to that question, which is other than the two most important texts on Australian foreign policy, which is Alan Gingell's Fear of Abandonment and Gingell and Wesley's Making Australian Foreign Policy. 
Alan, do you want to go first? Thank you, my friend. <laughs> John Lewis Gaddis's magisterial biography of George Kennan, George F. Kennan, an American life on how one individual in the system can interact with and influence their own times. Agency again, Darren. <laughs> and secondly, because there's so little useful that's been written on foreign policy compared with strategic and defence policy, and because foreign policy is what fundamentally interests me, I recommend Christopher Hill, and this is the British Christopher Hill, not the American one, the changing politics of foreign policy, and we'll have them both on the show notes. Yes. Yes. Well, let me recommend a few strategies. First, it would be to develop an expertise in an area you're passionate about. So be a specialist before you become a generalist. And whether that's China or climate change or international humanitarian law, learn a field first. Those who remember the Frances Adamson episode will recall that she said the department needs both specialists and generalists. I'm merely suggesting a sequencing here for those who themselves aspire to be both. Second, I think because China will be so important to most things Australia wants to achieve in the world, everyone will need to have some knowledge about how China itself works. Um, and two good books to start would be Evan Osnos's Age of Ambition, which, Alan, you've recommended before, as did Francis, and Richard McGregor of the Lowy Institute, his book, The Party. And third, you know, for the more academically minded, some of the scholars who have most influenced me are Albert Hirschman, Thomas Schelling. Uh, Robert Gilpin, David Baldwin, and Susan Strange. And I cannot end the episode without recommending, with great affection and much respect, the works of the chair of my PhD panel, uh, John Eikenberry, whose work on liberal internationalism is certainly being tested at the moment, but I continue to think remains essential for charting a course into the future. Okay, well, that was fun. Can I thank everyone who suggested a question? And note that the two biggest topics we omitted where there were questions were climate change and Indonesia, and that's because we're planning dedicated episodes to each in the months ahead. All right, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for research and audio editing, XC Chong for research support, and, of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon.